Well, good morning, New City Church. It is a privilege to be here with you today. I was here a month ago. Most of you, I see most of you were here. I'm a missionary, was a missionary in South America and Peru for the last 10 years. And now I'm at the residency for church planters at Perimeter. Where we just, my, my family just moved in last week to our house. So we're kind of, I'm still really, I have all those sore places in my body still, places you didn't know that could be sore or, or, or sore. And so we're, we're excited about being here. Talked to Ryan, talked a little bit about today, and he told me about that you guys were going through the book of Ephesians. And uh, we're about to get to a really exciting section where you talk about spiritual warfare and Satan and all that crazy stuff. We talked a little bit and decided on this passage that today on where you see Satan. It's one of these, it's kind of like Satan makes these peekaboo appearances in Scripture. And so let's now, if you haven't already turned there, open your Bibles or fire up your device to Luke 22. And we're going to get a running start starting with chapter 24. And as you do that, would you please stand as we read God's holy word? The Bible says this, a dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you, rather let the greatest among you be as the youngest, as a leader, as the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves. Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father signed to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, and sit on thrones and judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He just instituted the Lord's Supper, so they're sitting at the table. Verse 31, this is our section. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I lived in Peru, I would often talk with our supporters, our family back in the States, and uh, I would usually get an update on what's going on in the United States, and it went something like this. Oh, Alan, it's getting really bad. I, it's, things are just going from bad to worse. If, if this thing passes with Obamacare, I'm going to move to Peru with you. I had several people tell me that. And they, they never moved to Peru. They never did. And since I've been back in the United States, it's, it's been interesting not only to, to hear it from afar, but actually to experience it. And, and I see the sadness on so many Christians, Christian-American eyes. And, and I hear the, their pessimism of where, where things are going. I've heard people tell me, oh, Alan, look, just in the month of June, we just had blow after blow after blow, we, you know, we started off with Bruce, now Caitlyn Jenner, being on the cover of Vanity Fair, and all these church, black, historic black churches are burning, and they had the shooting at Charleston, and, and now the SCOTUS ruling of homosexual unions. I mean, Alan, we, you have come at a bad time. You should have stayed. 
I'm like, okay, I know things are changing rapidly, and yeah, we're probably now culturally on the margins of society now, but let's just be honest. It's pretty self-evident that failure is not an American virtue. It's not something that we want to instill in our children, do we? And we're, we're pretty good. I mean, coming from another country, a third world country perspective, America is a winning country, right? You know, we win most of the wars before Vietnam. We are a pretty strong nation. Most, you can pick out Americans most any place in the world when you travel because they're usually the loudest, right? You know, failure is not always a bad thing. And, and let me say this. I'm just going to say at the out for outset that winning is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. I mean, I'm pretty competitive, and I, I really like to win. I act like sometimes I'm not competitive, but I'm one of those kind of sneaky competitive guys that, that I try to sneak up on you and win. But, I, you know, and so winning is not a bad thing, but neither is failure. And, 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 so, and there's so much emphasis on having a successful life that there's hardly any emphasis and any understanding about what, it, what do you do with your failure? What do you, not, not just as individuals, but as a church, as a, as, a, as a people in the United States. So I think it's a good time to think through, you know, what, what a theology of failure. So we won't be sucker punched into fighting like the world fights. I mean, here in our text, we're going to see that, that, that Peter is sucker punched by Satan to fight back like he fights, is fighting him. And we see in our passage this case study, a good case study of Peter. And Peter blows it big time. He's one of Jesus' closest friends. And by the time the rooster crows, Peter denied him how many times? Three. You know the story. Denied him three times. It's a big failure, a big, big deal. I want to look just at three points this morning. Why Peter failed? It's kind of a, a little bit longer point. What Jesus did about it, it's pretty short. And then, and then why Jesus did what he did. And that's, we'll, we'll conclude that. It's kind of a little bit longer. So it's kind of long, short, long. So if you like to pace yourself. So, you're gonna, so, so why, why Peter failed? Why did he fail? Before our text, Jesus just instituted the Lord's Supper. He's celebrating the Passover. He reinterprets it, remixes it. And he, and he just institutes that. He washes their feet before that. The re- disciples receive the, the, the bread and the wine. And they, they break out in this childish argument. at the t- Could you, I mean, this always confuses me. I, I have, I'm the father of four girls. And just yesterday I was setting up my, my office. Uh, we just finally figured out, you know, where we put. I mean, it's one of these 1980 homes. You, there's like the, the, the sitting area. I don't know what the seating area is for today. It's kind of like your china. What do you do with your china? The seating area, we kind of figured out, well, we have, you have a lot of books, and so we'll put your study in there. So I'm down unpacking books, trying to get ready for today, and I hear two of my girls screaming at the top of their lungs, I mean, over each other. I'm like, what? World War III just broke out upstairs. So, you know, I do the typical dad thing. I'm too, I'm too tired to stand up and go up there patiently and lovingly ask them what's going on. So I scream at them too, like, come on, kids, what's going on? And get them come down, and they all come down, thankfully. I don't know what's going on. I mean, they're just screaming at each other about some floating circus. They're getting ready for grandpa. I didn't know what was going on. 
And so I'm sitting here trying to just kind of mediate this, this story. And Jesus, could you imagine what's going on here with Peter? I mean, they're like, they're seeing some of the most incredible acts of humility and love. And they break out with this argument of who is the greatest. They, they completely miss it here. Our text kind of shows us the three reasons why Peter failed and denied Jesus. And the first hint is when Jesus looks at Peter and he calls him by his birth name. Did you catch that in verse 31? His, his, that's his, that's his, that's what the, his mama named him that. His daddy named him that. Simon. Simon. It's not, it's not his vocational name. You know, Peter means rock. He's, you know, if someone named me rock, you know, I think it would be, I would prefer you to call me rock. Not my, not my Alan. But, so he doesn't call him Peter. Peter says Simon, Simon. And he says it twice to arrest his attention. But Peter's clueless. And the reason why he's clueless, this is the first reason, is because he's overestimated his, himself. He's overestimated himself. He's saying, Jesus, I've got your back. I'm, I'm with you. You know, I, we, we, we're with you. We're going to go with you to death. Don't you know we're in this with you? We're going to die with you, Jesus. Peter thinks he's got it all figured out. And he has overestimated his ability and assumes that he has what it takes to complete Jesus' mission. Don't you know you have these followers? Have you been around followers before? You're trying to lead something, and, the, and your followers think they know what to do better than you do. And so they try to take you this way. And this is kind of what's going on here. Like, Jesus, you need to go this way. You need, and, and, and a lot of times in the church, we, we think, you know, we're on board. We're on mission with Jesus, right? We want to make disciples. We want to plant churches. We want to transform the city. And we get so enamored with our plans and our strategies that we forget that it's Jesus who said, upon this rock, I will build my church. So we, all, we often fall, are in Peter's situation, and we overestimate ourselves. Secondly, Peter wrongly estimated Jesus' kingdom. He wrongly thought about Jesus' kingdom. Now, Peter had Jesus' kingdom completely upside down. He thought that Jesus was going to usher in his new kingdom like all the other kings before Jesus in the history of the world. He's got, he's got his little dagger sword strapped, right? He's going to do it by force. I mean, he was, he was going to conjure up an army and take over Rome. And so Jesus, you can see that Peter, you know, there's a scene in the garden after this that, that, that Peter gets out his sword. The, the temple guards are coming in. And we know that Peter is not a soldier, really. But, but you know, Peter probably must be thinking, see, Jesus, I told you, I got the sword, and I'm up here, I'm about to, you know, he's, I'm going I'm to I'm attack this guy. But I'll see, see, I know he's not a soldier, because if he was really trained, he was aiming for the servant's head with his, with his, with his knife, right? With his, with his sword. But instead, somehow, he lops off the ear. And so he's clumsy with tools, with his, with his gear. And so Jesus goes over there and he heals the man's ear. See, Peter was living out the wrong story. He had the, he had the wrong vision of Jesus' kingdom here. See, Jesus is not like the other kings of the earth. He is the king of kings who doesn't establish his kingdom by the taking of lives, but by laying down his life for others. And Peter just didn't get it yet. 
And so Peter denied Christ because he, he thought that Jesus had failed. He really did. He thought Jesus was off mission. He was off the plan. And so he abandoned ship. So earlier, Jesus revealed to his disciples that he was going to establish his kingdom by suffering, dying, and then rise again. Remember that? He said that three times in the Gospels. He, he came to them, and he said, he said it in very plain English, or not English, but Hebrew, Aramaic. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And on one occasion, this, this is a crazy scene for me. Peter takes Jesus aside, and he rebukes him. Remember that? He takes Jesus aside, and he rebukes him. And he says, Jesus, what are you thinking? I mean, you're going to discourage your guys, man. We, we're all in. We're going to, we got your back. We're going to take the kingdom. We're going to help you with this kingdom thing. You know, you just got, that's probably not the thing to say. You're going to die and do all that. That's, that's going to really be bad. You remember what Jesus says to Peter? Remember what Jesus said to Peter? He didn't, he didn't say, Peter, you got it all wrong. He says, get behind me, Satan. For you are a stumbling block to me. Because your mind is not on the things of God, but on the things of man. And see, that's his last problem. Because not only does Peter overestimate himself, wrongly uh, estimate the kingdom, but he underestimates his enemy, the serpent king. The serpent king who's after his life. And so we see in our chapter, chapter 22, Satan has already entered Judas so that he will betray Jesus. And now Satan is targeting the disciples. He's, he's setting his aim, especially at Peter, and he's coming after them. And when he comes, and we see in verse 31 that Satan comes up to Jesus and he, he demands that he may have the permission to sift the disciples. Now we're kind of, I know we're in the New Testament, but we're but as, as redemptive history goes, we're really kind of in the Old Testament. And let me tell you a little bit something about Satan in the Old Testament. Satan in the Old Testament had access to the heavenly tribunal, to the heavenly court. We see it in Job. We see it in some of in the Chronicles. We see that he comes up to, he says, remember Job. Remember, remember this person. And he, and he accuses before God certain saints. And this is what he's doing here. He's doing the same thing. He's coming up. He's, he's been kicked out of the tribunal now after the cross. We'll talk about that later. But here, he's coming up to Jesus, and he's demanding them to sift, like, to sift the disciples. Now, you know, back in, you know, in the Middle East, farmers, when they thresh wheat, they get this winnowing fork, and they throw up the wheat, and there's wind blowing. And so that the whole purpose is, is to blow away the chaff, all that useless garbage that they usually burn, and, and, and the thing that falls to the ground is the grain of wheat, which is the valuable thing. And so Satan is asking Jesus if he, he could throw up the disciples in the air to see what their faith is made of. In other words, leave the disciples alone, Jesus. You've been protecting them, kind of like Job. You've been blessing them so much. You've been around them. You've been protecting them. Let them stand on their own two feet. See what they're made of. So, Peter and the disciples will be sifted. And I wonder, you know, Peter is not like this secular guy who doesn't believe in Satan. It's like, oh, that's just a metaphor. He believes Satan's real. But he, he's, not like, he's like a lot of us. You, most of you probably believe Satan's real, don't you? And maybe some of you don't. But, but 
we often live as if Satan doesn't exist. We often live as if he has no, he's kind of neutered. He doesn't do anything. We kind of, we blame our flesh, we blame other things, but we don't really see Satan at work. And he kind of likes it like that in the West. In poor countries and in Eastern countries, he's a little bit more visible. But in our society, he's a lot more undercover. And, and see, see, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, they were the kings and queens to rule and have dominion over all the earth. And when they sinned, Adam and Eve abdicated their role as vice regents, as kings and queens over this earth to Satan. And so it's, it's not a hyperbole, it's not an exaggeration to say that Satan is the ruler of this world, as the New Testament says. So much so that Paul says that he is the God of this era. He acts like a God over this fallen creation. He has got a lot of power. He has got way more power than you probably admit to. Now, I've served in prison missionary, so you know I probably want me to tell a missionary story. And so this is not one of my stories. This is a friend of mine. Dr. Paul Long worked in the Congo of Africa. It's kind of a different context, so it kind of helps us see how Satan works in different places. So in the Congo, he had a disciple named Mungundi. And Mungundi was following Jesus, and then he had this crisis in his life, and he, he moved back to his home village, and he abandoned the faith. And so Dr. Paul Long went to go visit his disciple, Mungundi. And to go talk to him. And so they were chatting in front of his, his uh, hut. I don't know if it was a hut. I mean, I've never been to Congo. Who, who knows? It could have been a nice house. But he, from his house, and, and across the way, across the street, there was a witch doctor, and he had built up this dirt mound. I have no idea why. But he's building up this dirt mound, and he's laying out all his charms, and they're rattling, and they're calling on spirits. And so Dr. Long and Mungundi are across the way looking at him and go, wow. And Dr. Long says, that looks like a great pulpit. I'm going to go, hey, Mungundi, let's go over there and let's preach the gospel. And Mungundi says, oh, no, Dr. Long, you have no authority here. And he's like, oh, I am a Presbyterian. I know that Jesus Christ is Lord over every square inch of this earth. Watch me. I'm going to go over here, walk over here to this mound. I'm going to preach the gospel. Now, let me read from you in his journal what his experience was once he went over to that dirt mound. And he said, Upon rising to speak, I sensed an oppressive presence and a power of unbearable wickedness. The black darkness, is what they called it, was suffocating me. I felt cold fingers squeeze my throat. I could not talk. The medicine men laughed and cried out with demonic voices. I sat down next to my friend, mute and defeated. When my voice returned, I said, I can't speak here. And my friend responded, You should have known better that you do not have right to authority in this place. So they left the mound, went down or another part of the village, preached the gospel. God converted many people and they planted a church there. What do you think about that story? that mess with you a little bit? You're like, ah, I don't know, that sounds Pentecostal or, you know. I mean, seriously, what do you think? This is a Presbyterian pastor. What do you think about that? I mean, it should mess with you a little bit. 
And if it does, it's probably because you have underestimated Satan, like Peter has underestimated Satan. Oh, but Alan, all of Satan's power is permitted power. Jesus delegated his power to him, and I'm going to say, yes, that's true. He did go and request to be sift the disciples. Yes, that is true. But let me tell you, let me, this may scare you, but this is true. Jesus is pretty loose with his permissions. Jesus is pretty loose with Satan. He lets him do a lot of stuff because Jesus is not afraid of failure like we are. We're terrified of it. Our identity is so wrapped up in our success. But Jesus, that's, you know, that's, that's the cross is the sign of failure for so many. So I'm getting ahead of myself here. So, so let's, let's, what, did Jesus do? what did Jesus do about it? Peter blew it. He overestimated himself, underestimated his enemy, and wrongly estimated the kingdom. So what did Jesus do about it? Now let me answer that by, by kind of painting a scenario. Let's say you're the president of the United States of America, and you are a sports fanatic. You love baseball, and for whatever odd reason, your favorite team is the Braves. And so you want to go to a Braves game. And on your way to the Braves game, you have all your kids with you, and you get credible intel that there is going to be a terrorist attack at the Braves game, and they're going to kidnap your kids. If you were the president of the United States of America, what would you do? You would probably, I mean, if it was me, I would, I would call all of my resources available and protect my kids. I would get them out of there. I would call the Army, Air Force, and Navy, and Marines if necessary to protect my kids. Now, Jesus has received credible intel that Peter is about to get a terrorist attack from Satan. Jesus was there. He heard him. He asked permission. He gave it to him. He didn't say no. And so if I was Peter, I'd be like, so, so I'm hearing Jesus say this. And I always wonder, you know, okay, I'm hearing Jesus saying, Alan, Alan, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And I'm thinking to myself, and you said no, right? Like, you, you know, you said no. Like, you're stronger than the President of the United States of America. I mean, you, you have all sorts of angelic forces on your side. Just flip him with your word. Flip him with your word. Get him out of the way. But what does the Bible say here? Jesus doesn't do that. He does something stunning. He said, Peter, but Peter, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This is just a side note here. If this is Jesus' first reaction in the battle, on mission, never underestimate the importance and power of intercessory prayer. That's a whole other sermon. But why, so why does Jesus, this is my last point, is why? Why did, did Jesus do what he did? Why did he pray for him and not flick him with his word? Why did he not send his angelic powers and decimate Satan? Why did he do that? I could think of at least three reasons. And there's probably more. And I'm telling you, I've preached this text several times, and it used to be an emphasis on prayer, but the more I look at it, it's, it's, it's going more towards failure because I, I just think there's so much here. And the first reason is Peter had to fail so that 
he could join Jesus' mission. Now, what do I mean by that? Give me, give me a second to kind of explain what I mean. In our English Bibles, if it was, if it was written in Southernese, it would read like this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have y'all, meaning the disciples, so that he might sift you like wheat. And he's talking to Peter individually on behalf of the disciples. But, but, when, but what the key point here is, is that Satan did not ask just for Peter. He asked for all of them. He wanted them all. Now, there's a change of persons in verse 32. It says, it says but I have prayed for you, singular. He speaks Spanish. Ustedes is y'all and tú is, is you in the singular. So he's talking to tú, you, Peter. Now, why did he do that? Why did he do that? And we see later why he does that. Because he, he explains himself. So, so that your faith may not fail. And here, here's the reason. And when you have turned again, in other words, when you have repented and been restored, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Jesus is inviting Peter to join him to restoring the brethren, but he can only do it after he fails. Because there's something about failure that enables him to restore others. There's something about failure that enables him to do that. Now, if you know Harry Reader over in Birmingham, he's, he's said this example on many occasions, but I think it's really helpful. He, he says, okay, now outside of Jesus, who are the, the three biggest and most important people in the Scripture? You have Moses, you have David, and you have Paul. Now, you're all thinking that, right? And what do they share in common? These three important men, Moses, David, and Paul. They all were murderers. They all were implicitly involved in the killing of others. And these three men were the most responsible for writing the majority of the Scripture. Murderers. You see, failure doesn't mean you're useless. It doesn't mean that you, you've lost your identity. It doesn't mean that you're just done for. Now, Paul, what, he, what Paul means when he says in Romans 8 that we're more than conquerors. I don't know if you thought about this. My seminary professor talked about this, and, and I've just read recently in, in a classic book by Piper, don't, don't Waste Your Life. This is what he says. He says, a conqueror defeats his enemy. Okay? He defeats his enemy. But one who's more than a conqueror subjugates his enemy. See the difference? A conqueror nullifies the purposes of his enemy, but the but one who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his purposes. A conqueror strikes down the foe, and a more than a conqueror makes his foe his servant. Okay, let me, let me put that on. Let me, let me explain that a little bit. Okay, failure raises sword to chop off the head of Peter's faith. And in the falling of the sword, Jesus grabbed it and redirected it to lop off Peter's pride and unbelief. Failure now serves Peter. In Christ, your failure serves you in deeper, more profound ways than you could ever imagine. I, I hope this encourages you. This is amazing. This is amazing news. We actually, we see Peter later in life when he's older, he's writing a letter to Christians in, in modern-day Turkey, and he says this to the, these struggling 
suffering churches. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. So he didn't overestimate himself. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he didn't underestimate his enemy anymore. Resist him and be firm in your faith, knowing that your brothers are suffering just the same way throughout the world. So he didn't wrongly estimate the kingdom. Because in Scripture, we have these two twin parallels of themes, okay? Just kind of give you some real quick biblical theology of Scripture. On one theme, you see this kingdom advancing, and it seems victorious. It seems strong. But on the other hand, you see the sufferings of the saints. You see uh, Jesus dying, and you see all the Christians suffering and being martyred for their faith. Now, you put them together, and it goes like this. The kingdom of God only advances by the suffering of Jesus and his saints. They're not at odds with each other. It's, it's kind of hard because you, they're like thrown up there both together, and we have this idea through Disney what kingdoms should look like or how they should act. And then we have this idea over here at suffering, but we can't, it's hard to keep them together. And Jesus said, keep them together because the kingdom advances through your suffering. It advances through your failure. You're more than a conqueror. I've, Jesus has subjugated your failure to serve you now. Okay, so that was a long first reason. And, but the, the, another reason is Peter had to fail so that he would experience God's grace. He had to fail to experience God's grace. It was, a, it, was a, it was a harsh kindness of Jesus. Now, being rejected and betrayed is some of the deepest wounds we'll receive in this life. And if you've lived long enough, you know what I'm talking about. If you've been rejected before by a close person, a close friend or family member, it hurts really bad. Last year, I went through a, I was rejected and betrayed by people I thought were really close friends. And I went through, a, and I'm usually a pretty upbeat person. I went through a, a time of depression because of it. Now think of this. Some theologians, they say that Jesus' worst pain on the cross was when the Father abandoned His Son on the cross. And the only thing that was present, only part of the Father that was present with Jesus on the cross was His wrath. His condemning, killing wrath. And I, I, I believe that's true. I mean, he was completely devastated. You know, he almost, his, his whole joints were coming apart because, because of his father turned his face from him. But perhaps a close second would have been that his friends had rejected him. That's why divorces are so painful is because the person you've loved and covenanted with has betrayed you. It's so painful. And, and here, Peter is denying him. Judas has betrayed him. It must have really been painful to Jesus. I don't know if you've thought about that, but it must have really hurt him. I mean, he was up sweating drops of blood. And he wanted his guys to be with him and pray. And they, and they were all sleeping. So here's the, here's the kicker. When Satan asked to sift Peter like wheat and the other disciples, he knew that. He knew that, he knew that Peter was going to reject him. Like who in this room in the right mind would willingly just say, okay, I'm going to let you reject me and hurt me. I'm going to let you reject me and hurt me. 
And so the reason why Jesus did that is because he knew that only through Peter's big failure, his denial, that he would finally get closer to the bottom of how deep his love is for him. He wanted so bad to show him how deep his love was for him. And could you imagine how shameful it was for Peter? It must, it must have been terrible for Peter. But he wanted the shameful one to become the loved one. I know there's some people in this room who are carrying loads of shame. It's just part of being a sinner. And it seems like the older you get, the, the more you, it kind of builds up in your life. Not only do you feel like you've been a failure to, to God, but you failed your family, you failed yourself, you're really hard, some of you are really, really hard on yourself. Did you know that God doesn't love you any less for any of those failures? He doesn't love you a, a, any less. In fact, the cross is proof that He loves you, the Father loves you just the same as He loves His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. I hope that encourages you. And, and some of you may be thinking, oh, but I, I want to experience that more. I want to experience that more. And if you're feeling just an iota of that right now, that is evidence that you have faith working in you right now. Be encouraged. You have faith working in you right now. So you can say you're sorry to God. You can say you're sorry to whoever whom you failed. You can make things right, even though you may think it would utterly destroy you. You have the strength to know that your failure and your shame will now be at your benefit to turn things around and serve you and make you more like Peter, to make you more like Jesus, really. So, if you're going to be used by God as a person, as a family, as a church, you'll fail. You'll fail. And you simply do not have what it takes for the new city to to grow and multiply and make disciples and change the city. You just don't have what it takes by yourself. And Jesus is not as scared of that. He's not. He's not scared of your failure. He embraces it. It's the very door to experience deeper grace from Jesus, but it's also to get us on His mission and to join Him, restoring others who have also because only Jesus is strong enough to turn our failures into kingdom advances. You see, it's this table here that Peter and the disciples just celebrated before he blew it. And it's no coincidence that this happened right before Peter denied his Savior. It wasn't a magic bullet that would stop him, but it was something that was set in motion that would strengthen him over and over again. In other words, Jesus here at this table changed Peter's metric. He changed his metric from a sword to his body and his blood. That's the new metric. That's the new measure of success, is laying down your life for others. That is way more powerful 
than anything a sword could accomplish. And see, this table is a table for failures. That's just such great news. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we're scared. Uh, we don't like to fail. I don't like to fail. Uh, some of my biggest fears in life is to fail at trying hard at certain things. With my wife, with church plant, with the business. Oh, Father, and I, 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 I don't like it. But thank you for being bigger than our failures. Thank you that you subjugate all of our trials and all of our enemies and all of our failures to serve us, be beneficial to us, and advance your kingdom of grace through us. Oh, God, this is hard to, to grasp. I, I'm having a hard time even explaining it, Father. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Spirit, would you help us now? Would you hound us down throughout the week to help us meditate on these things so that we, too, would be transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.